As you're being seated, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. For those who have been keeping track after today, we'll be about 85%, maybe 86% of the way through Matthew's gospel. The end is near. How fitting for our passage, too, that the end is near. This morning, our sermon text will be taken from Matthew 24, verse 36, all the way through Matthew 25, 13, because it's a very long passage that says the same thing in many different ways. And as tempting as it was to do that in three different sermons and preach the same thing three times and see who noticed, uh, (laughs) we're just going to cover it all today. So I'll be reading the first part of the passage, and then the rest of the passage I'll read as we go through the text. Uh, This morning, I'll be reading... To begin with, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. Hear now the word of the Lord. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. I uh, assume that we all played hide-and-seek as a child, which which is a strange thing because there's no rule book. There's, there's nobody who like sits you down and says, okay, here's the rules, how, here's how it's played. You just do it, and you pick up on it. And, and as, as many differences as there are in how you play, I mean, whether you count to 20 or 100, whether you're inside a house or out in the woods, whether you're standing in the corner or covering your eyes, one thing is consistent. When, it, when the person who is it is done counting, they shout out, ready or not, Here I come. that's the sermon in a nutshell, okay? <laughs> ready or not. Here he comes, okay? Christian rocker Larry Norman back in 1969 wrote a song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. It's a song about the return of Christ. But, but what does that mean to be ready? How do we get ready for the return of Christ? Do we stock up on imperishable goods? Do we sell everything we have and give it to the poor? What does it mean to be ready? And before you tune out because it's just another sermon about the end times, I want you to consider this. How you view the end affects how you live up until the end. Your view of where this is all heading and what the ending is going to be like has a direct effect on what you do in the meantime, on how you choose to live. It, it, it affects what you consider to be worth investing in. It affects uh, what is worth your time. It affects where your hopes are. It affects where you find your joy. In reality, everyone, not just Christians, everyone lives their life with one eye fixed on how things will end, and they live their life based on what they see there. So what does Jesus tell us to expect about the end? But more importantly, how does Jesus tell us to live because of His return? How do we live our lives with the return of Jesus in view? 
Well, one thing he warns us about that seems to be very important is that Jesus will return without warning. He will return without warning. And to understand what he means when he speaks about that, we need to do a little review. We've, uh, this is the fourth week in Matthew 24. We need to briefly review what we saw in the past three weeks as we looked at chapter 24. Uh, because chapter 24 began with the disciples walking with Jesus and, and looking at the temple in Jerusalem, this magnificent piece of architecture with these giant, like 10, 12-foot-tall stones just kind of just set up, and it's beautiful, and it's shiny, and, and they're commenting, Jesus, isn't this amazing? And Jesus says, oh, you like that, do you? I tell you, a day's going to come when not one of these stones will be on top of another. It'll be leveled. And what he was talking about, what he was predicting, was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by the Romans. But the disciples heard that the temple was going to be destroyed, and, and they thought, well, that, that's got to be the end of the world. If that happens, that's the end. And then the Messiah, which is Jesus, he's going to come in as king, and he's going to begin his eternal kingdom. And so in verse 3, they ask, tell us, when will these things be and, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because in their mind, it was all one event. And they called that event, your coming. They said, Jesus, your coming. What will be the signs of your coming? And you need to not hear that question as a 21st century American who's so used to hearing talk of Jesus' coming being about his second return. You see, the disciples hadn't yet grasped that Jesus was even leaving. So a second return at the end of history was not on their radar. They thought this was going to happen soon, that Jesus, the, 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 the Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be leveled, and Jesus would begin His new kingdom as Messiah King. Now when they said coming, what were the signs of your coming? They were using a very important word that I'm going to mention a, a few times here. Uh, in Greek, the word is perusia. Uh, in, in Greek culture, what that described was when a king who had conquered, like a, a leader, a general, or a king who had conquered a city or a territory, and he would be arriving into the city to take his throne, to take his reign and his rule. And, and when he was in sight, the cry would go up, he's here, he's here! And all of his loyal followers would rush out of the city. And they'd rush down the road to meet him. It sounds like the triumphal entry, doesn't it? And they'd rush out on the road to meet him, and then they'd follow with him, singing and rejoicing and celebrating. And they'd get into the kingdom, and the king would take his, his throne, and he would reign, and his followers would rejoice. And they'd have a celebration. That's what it was all about. So when they said, when will be your coming? What are the signs of your coming? What they have in mind is you're going to enter the city triumphant and, and all your people are going to come out to meet you and we're going to enter together and celebrate. You have, to, you have to have that in mind if you're going to understand the rest of what Jesus says about the signs of his coming and what will happen. And their question is, how are we going to know that that's about to happen? What are the signs because we thought that's what was happening a few days ago when we all entered Jerusalem and everybody came out with their palm branches, but you're not on the throne yet. So how do we know that this is about to happen? So the rest of chapter 24, Jesus is answering what for the disciples was one question, but what for Jesus and now we understand was two questions. Number one, when will Jerusalem and the temple be destroyed? And number two, what will be the signs of the coming to reign of Jesus? And for almost all the chapter that we've looked at so far, even up to last week, when, as Randy showed us, talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and His, his messengers going out to gather His elect from the four corners of the earth, uh, all that language was not about 
some event at the end of time. All this stuff that we've seen so far is about the destruction of Jerusalem and, and, and the time that we are in now. The time that we are in now. So now, finally, Jesus gets to the second question. How are we going to know when you're coming to reign as king? What's it going to be like? And Jesus says, the signs of my coming are this, nothing. Nothing. Because you don't know before it's going to happen. You won't be able to tell. There were signs and warnings about the fall of Jerusalem, but concerning the day of His return to reign, we see in verse 36 that concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. In other words, you, you won't be able to look at the news and see signs. You won't be able to follow politics and say, oh, aha, aha, see, that's it, that's it, this is it, now it's happening. You're not going to be able to look at prophecies and do some math and figure out when it's going to take place. And because I know that if I don't say this, somebody is going to ask me after the service. Well, Jesus says you can't know the day or the hour, but we can know the month or the year, right? No. Because Jesus is using the language of his day, and, and in his culture, and in, in the Bible, you see that when someone says the day of or the hour of something, usually they don't mean the exact day or hour. It's, it's a term for a, a time period. The, now is the hour when the Son of Man will be glorified, he says. The day of the Lord is near. It's not talking about one hour or one day. It's talking about the time when something happens. So concerning the time when he returns, the point is, God in heaven alone knows when it will happen, and He's not showing us His cards. In fact, it will specifically not be preceded by great tumultuous events like wars and turmoil and suffering and pandemics. Life will be very normal. Look at verse 37 through 39. He compares it to the days of Noah. Everybody was just going about their business. He says, just like that, so will be the perusia, the coming to reign, the triumphant return of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Nobody was sitting around going, hey guys, it's storming, it's about to rain, I think a big flood's about to happen. He says, no, life was continuing just as normal, and so it will be when Jesus returns. Nobody's going to be looking around going, oh, can you feel it? Things are getting weird. It's, it's getting crazy around here. Jesus is about to come back. He says, no, we're, we're just going to be doing our everyday thing. And then he's here. And then you say, but wait, Pastor, what about the next verses? Isn't there going to be a rapture? And when we see the rapture, we'll know that, that the time is short. And we look at verses 40 and 41. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. If you want to learn more about this, I encourage you to, to go on our webpage and pull up the old, um, we have a Sunday school series from about a year ago about the rapture and how that's not a biblical teaching that we see in Scripture. What this is describing is something different. And we have to read this in, in context of the other ways that Scripture describes the return of Jesus. Uh, the idea of a, a secret rapture, whereas some people are taken up and, and, uh, and go to heaven for seven years and wait for the return of Jesus. That, that's a new idea that came about a few hundred years ago uh, that was not consistent with what the church has taught and believed from Scripture about the return of Christ. To understand what verses 41 and 41, 40 and 41 are saying about one taken and another left. We have to, to understand all that Scripture says about the return of Christ and what happens. So I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4. 
which uses the exact same language. Jesus says, at my perusia, at my triumphant return, one will be taken and another left. Here's how Paul describes that same event. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming, the perusia, the triumphant return of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So what is Paul describing? What is that event like, the the coming, the return of Jesus? The trump will resound and the Lord will descend. That's the event he describes. Nobody's missing that. That is unmistakable. And Paul is describing the same event that Jesus is describing, where one is taken and another is left. They're the same event. It is an unmistakable return of the king in triumph. And that's what Paul is saying here. Remember when we talked about this Perugia event being a king returning in triumph, and what did his loyal followers do when they heard that he was coming, when they heard the trumpet's blast and the shout of the messengers that he was coming? His followers would leave the city... I'm off camera now, sorry. Uh, They would leave the city and meet him and then do what? Go off somewhere else? No. They meet him to accompany him back and celebrate his reign. So Paul says the trumpet will sound, the archangel will shout, and all of God's people, his faithful people living and dead, will rise up to do what? Meet him in the air. We're going out to meet him as he rides that white horse in victory and comes back into the conquered city and set up his kingdom. So one is taken and another is left. We are snatched up to meet him in the air. And when we do, we accompany him to the victory celebration that happens immediately. This is the return of Christ. This is how Jesus describes it. You won't know it's coming You won't have any warning. There's no signs in heaven or in the news. You're just going about your business at at the office, at school, at home, wherever, and boom, he's there. And the rest of the passage, Jesus talks about how we live because of that, how that affects the choices we make and the way we live. But one very clear implication so far, uh, because Jesus will return without warning, is that we're not to spend our time and our emotional energy Uh, obsessing over times and seasons and dates? And what if this is the mark of the beast? And what if this person is the Antichrist? And what if this is that? And what if this means that? We're not called to live that way. The point in Scripture is never to get us to ask, when will Jesus return? The point of Scripture is to ask, when He returns, will you be ready? Because he He will return without warning. The next thing we see as Jesus goes on is that because He will return without warning, He gives us a series of parables to teach us that our obedience can't wait. Our obedience can't wait. Verses 42 through 44, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It happens in our household. We, uh, we, we like to watch rocket launches, and, and being where we are in Florida, I don't know if you know this, but 
you, you can see them on a clear night. If, if there's a launch, you can see it going up off in the distance if you time it right. And so we'll, we'll follow on the webpage and see if there's going to be a launch at 2.30 in the morning. So we go to sleep at midnight and don't see the launch. Or if you knew somebody was going to break into your house at 12.30, are you turning off the lights and getting under the covers at 11? No, you are not. If you knew the stock market was going to crash on a certain day, you're going to invest everything you have in the market the day before? Probably not. I don't actually understand stocks. I don't think that's how they work. So nobody corrected me after the first service. So I'm assuming that you would not do that. And Jesus says, you know, in the same way, because you don't know, you can't live as if you do know. You can't live as if you have all the time in the world. You can't assume you have another 50 or even five years and that discipleship and obedience and following Jesus can wait until, until after you've taken care of something else. Until, you know, you, you know I want to follow Jesus and be obedient, but you know, right now, we just want to get our bank account in a more stable place, or we want to wait until retirement gives us the time, or, or we want to wait until the kids don't have so much on their calendar because they're just so busy or whatever it is that we feel more urgent about and demands our priority and our attention. Yeah, if you knew you had 100 years before the return of Christ, you could, you could maybe rearrange your priorities in a different way, I think. But we don't know, so we stay alert, we stay awake, we stay ready, because this is the only priority that matters. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to stay awake? What does it mean to be ready? Well, the next parable gets into that a little bit, beginning in verse 45. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing, so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master's delayed. He's taken a long time and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of the strongest words in the Bible on condemnation are in, are in that parable of Jesus returning and finding someone not living in readiness. What Jesus is telling us is that the two servants represent two options or paths for how your life can play out. Uh, the servant is given a job to do, and it's, it's not a small job. It's to take care of the household, to feed and nourish and protect and look after the other people in the house. And Jesus says, look, if the boss comes back and sees that he's done well, he's going to be rewarded. He's going to share in his master's joy. So when Jesus returns suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning, and finds that we are doing the things He's commanded to do. What sort of things? Loving one another, meeting the needs of those who are vulnerable, feeding the hungry, caring for others. If He finds us doing that job, He will be pleased, and we will join Him in rejoicing. But the wicked servant, that's the other path, the wicked servant notices that the boss is taking his time. And he figures, hey, I've, I've got time to do what I want to do, and then, you know, later on, I'll, I'll get the house in order. I'll clean up before he gets back, and no one will know the difference. He thinks he has more time than he really does, because he doesn't know when the return will be. And so the point is that our obedience can't wait. 
there's a way to view this that creates fear and anxiety in our hearts. And I don't want us to look at it that way, as if Jesus is threatening us. Oh, when I come back, and you don't know when that's going to be. If I come back and things aren't the way I want them to be, I'm going to be very displeased with you. You know, it's like a parent saying to a child, you know, I'm, I'm going to come check on your room. I'm not going to tell you when, but if there's any dirty clothes on the floor, you're getting punished. You know, just live in this perpetual anxiety of like, did I have it clean enough? Is it clean now? When's, when's the inspection coming due? No. I, I once knew a young man who, who, being told to clean his room, didn't want to do it because he knew he was just going to play in it again and mess it up again. And so he asked his parents, can you just tell me right before you're going to come check on it so I can get everything ready? Otherwise, it feels like, and he, he didn't use these words, but it feels like my work is in vain. Okay, I want to make sure it's ready when you come and, and no sooner. I don't want to waste my time getting ready if you're not on your way. Now, that kind of thinking might work with cleaning a room, but how would it work with flossing and brushing your teeth? Yeah, come on. Some of you have done this. You, you haven't flossed for five and a half months, and then you see on the calendar that you have a dentist appointment, and so you're like, oh, I'm going to floss for the next two weeks, and that's going to make everything better. And, and no, it does not. The dentist is not fooled. The hygienist is not fooled. No. That approach of just getting everything in order at the last minute, that only works if our obedience is something that God desires of us just because He wants a performance. If God is just putting hoops for us to jump through, you know, just obstacles for us to, to complete so that He checks on us and sees that we really care, that makes a little bit of sense, and then we should aim for the lowest acceptable setting. You know, let me just get it to the bare minimum before God gets back, and I'll be okay. But in this parable, what we see, as well as in the rest of Scripture, is that what the servant is called to do is a good thing in and of itself. He's called to nourish and protect and take care of the other servants. He's called to a good work. If we were just trying to obey Jesus in order to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing when He shows up, that leads to fearful anxiety. That leads to frustration. That leads to work that doesn't feel like it's worth it. But when we see that, that the life that we're called to live until Jesus returns, the, the watchfulness and readiness and preparation that He calls us to is not a performance, but it's a good thing, the best thing in and of itself, then those preparations and that work has meaning. It's a good thing. And so Paul in speaking to Christians about the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, says, Therefore, because all this, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We need that. We're not just trying to, to get everything, get our room cleaned up before the Lord gets back and checks on us. No, the thing that we're doing is in and of itself a beautiful and good thing. We're building the kingdom of God. So no matter how long we have to work at it and wait for Him, it's worth doing. And our, our obedience in that matter cannot wait until the last minute. So Jesus has warned us that He will return without warning and that therefore our obedience can't wait. But the, the last parable He gives beginning in chapter 25 is that our obedience must endure. 
uh, before we look at this parable, though, you know, because the first parable about the servants was about this, this feeling that, hey, you know, my master's taking a long time, but then he shows up sooner than expected. And that's the problem in the parable of the servants. But with this next parable, the problem is something that I suspect you feel as well. You know, it's taken a long time. His return has taken quite a long time. And it's kind of hard to stick with it, isn't it? To explain the parable, I I first want to give you a little background on wedding customs and how the wedding worked in the culture that Jesus is speaking this to. See, in our in our culture, typically, the, uh, you know, and I've done weddings before, you have the minister standing at the front and the groom and the groomsmen, you know, they're standing here and then at a certain point, the music begins and the bridesmaids come down and they file down on the side and then everybody stands up and there's a triumphant fanfare and the bride comes down and she comes and stands there and we have, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Didn't work that way in Jesus' culture. Number one, timing wasn't a very specific thing. You didn't get an invitation saying, they're going to get married at 2 p.m. on this day. It was more like, hey, everything's ready, come to the wedding. And you would show up, and you'd gather. And the bride was there, and she was beautiful, and, and everything's exciting, and there's drinks and beverages, and there's food, and everybody's celebrating, there's music. And there's, there's a few people that aren't there, and noticeably the groom is not there. And his, his attendants, his groomsmen, his friends are with him. And, and they're, they're out getting ready somewhere else. And, and they're getting all worked up and excited. And then, and then they, they enter the city. And the cry goes up from the watchman. The groom's here. He's here. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. And everybody rushes out. And, and they, they greet him. They celebrate. And instead of the bride coming down the aisle, you have the groom coming down the street to meet the bride. Which actually makes a little more sense when we see Scripture speaking of, of uh, the return of Christ being like the groom coming to meet his bride. And, and so what would happen is everybody's out there waiting to welcome and to meet the groom. And if it's dark out and you don't have electricity, which most of them didn't, um, you, you need lamps. You need to light the way so that he can see where to go and to make it a more festive environment. And you know, these lamps, these oil lamps can run for you know, 15 minutes or so. And so you bring extra oil to last through the night if you expected to be out late. With all that in mind, let's look at Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. But when the foolish took their lamps, they, they took no oil with them. Basically, they just had what was already in the lamp. They didn't take any extra. So that, that would work for a few minutes. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed, and they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. And the wise answered, saying, Well, there's not going to be enough for us and for you. And they're not being mean. They're basically saying, Look, if we share our oil with you, all our lamps go out, and then nobody can light the way and welcome the groom. So go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Doesn't it help to understand the the culture and the context a little bit and to, to know what's going on there? You see, these women, they were waiting for the groom and five of them didn't anticipate that it would take as long as it would and that it would go into the night and they would need to be ready for that. 
So when the wait got long, they weren't prepared and they could not endure. And then once the groom did arrive, what happened? They were cut off. They were excluded. They were left out. It it actually uses language very similar to what Jesus spoke in Matthew 7 when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I I will declare to them, I never knew you. Truly, I say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's kind of startling to see that that in this parable, Jesus isn't just saying that that being ready is, is better, and if you're caught unprepared, it's okay, he's going to be a little disappointed, but it's okay. No. It's the language of exclusion and rejection. You're left out of the feast and the celebration. So what does it mean, as he, that last word there, to watch? What does it mean to watch? Well, it's pretty much what we saw in the story of the servants, that we have work to do, we have a responsibility to care for God's people, to manage His household, to do what's good and right, to build His kingdom. And though He delays, though He waits, we endure, we hang in there as long as it takes. And that's the key. As long as it takes. The young women in the parable had a job to do, to light the way and welcome the groom. And as it got late, they got distracted, and eventually they just say, you know, it's not worth the preparation. There was a, a time a year ago, uh, not a year, whew, many years ago, where my wife and I were, uh, before kids, we were on a mission trip, and we were um, going to Ethiopia. We were flying from China, we were living in China, going with a group of Chinese students to Ethiopia for a mission trip, and um, we were flying in separately from some of the other people on our team, and uh, our flight got delayed, 13 hours. We spent 13 hours in Entebbe, Uganda, 13 hours. So we arrived in Ethiopia having no knowledge of where we were supposed to go, no address, no transportation, carrying about 18 suitcases worth of medical supplies and Bibles and things like that. It was just, and we didn't know where to go. All we knew was that members of our team and, and the, the, the host were supposed to meet us there at the airport. And they waited 13 hours. No cell phone. No, hey, we're, we're, we're stuck, we're going to be late. They waited 13 hours, faithfully, because to them it was important. It mattered. And, and that's what's going on here. Child of God, you were called to live and to plan and to order your life around something that you're going to have to wait for. And all of your life, your money, your words, Your time, everything, is to be spent in pursuit of that which you are waiting for. No matter how long it delays. No matter how long it takes. And there will be many other things that you can do with your time. And many other things you can devote your attention to. But if you do not endure in your obedience, then you are not ready when He gets there. Jesus calls it foolish to pursue other things when you're waiting for the groom to appear. And when he does, if you have persisted in waiting and have been faithful and prepared by serving and by obeying and doing as he commanded, you will be welcomed into the feast. 
And obedience that endures will share the master's joy. There's something very subtle in, in all these parables and these verses that I want you to see. Because when it comes to being ready, uh, we're used to thinking of it in terms of perhaps a spectrum. You know, I, I might be more ready than this guy, but I'm, I wasn't as ready as she was. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a spectrum that we can be on with readiness. But, but does Jesus talk about that at all? He doesn't. Not in these stories. You're either the wise virgin or the foolish virgin. You are either the faithful servant or the wicked servant. It's one or the other. And what I want you to see is that is good news. That is good news because that points us clearly to the gospel. The gospel which reminds us that it's not our actions that determine our standing on the day of judgment. When he returns and evaluates our life and our preparation, he doesn't say, okay, well, I had in mind this level of preparedness, and you got about here. If only you'd gotten a little bit more. If only you'd given a little bit more to the church. If only you'd gone on that mission trip you said no to. If you'd only been a little bit kinder with your work. If you only watched those social, if you'd just deleted your Facebook, you'd have been great. You know, that's not how this works. You're either ready or you're not. And that directs us to the gospel in this way. Because it's not our standing that makes us ready. It's not our list of accomplishments that makes us ready. The gospel is the good news that because Jesus died in the place of His people, He has already endured judgment for us. And so when He returns, we do not need to fear condemnation as we're going to sing in just a few minutes. No condemnation now I dread. Why? Because Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, the living head, and clothed in His righteousness divine. What makes us prepared is not the works that we accomplish, not the good things we do. What makes us prepared for the return of Christ is that we have Christ now. He is yours, amen? He is in you. That is what makes you ready, is that you are already claimed as His. You belong to Him, and belonging to Him looks a certain way. It expresses itself. It inevitably produces a certain way of living, and that is what makes you ready. The gospel is not God loves you and died for you, therefore shape up or He's going to be angry or disappointed. The gospel is that God has saved you, and that salvation will produce endurance. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. And that's that same word, watchful, that Jesus used to watch, therefore. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And this is, this is the beautiful part. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself, God will restore you. God will confirm you. God will strengthen you. God will establish you. How is it that you stand firm? God does it. How is it that you are ready? God makes you that. If Jesus, upon His return, finds me obedient, faithful, watching, because I have done the right things, I have lived the right life, I have believed the right way, then to me be the glory. 
But that's not what happens. Peter said, God will restore you. God will confirm you. God will strengthen you. God will establish you. And then in verse 11, therefore to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If I succeed in obeying, to me be the glory. If I obey only because it is God doing it through me, then to him be the glory as we're about to sing. Can it be Could it possibly be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? No. It is only possible because of grace. It's not possible because I've done something right. And so when when we stand before the judgment of God, He does not look at us and say, you did it. You did it all. You did a good job. They did a bad job. You did a good job. They were foolish. You were wise. No. He sees what Christ has done and accepts you. And because of that, brothers and sisters, you have the courage, you have the strength, you have the Spirit to be ready. That is good news indeed. You will be ready. Fear not, because Christ is in you. Let us thank the Father for that today. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the promise of your kingdom, that you will return in glory, that you will reign eternally, that we who are your children will be ready until then. By your Spirit that is surely in us, make us watchful, make us obedient, make us faithful, make us ready, however long it takes until the day of your return. And on that day, we will rejoice with all of God's people. Not that we have succeeded. Not that we have overcome. We will rejoice in what Christ has done on our behalf. And we will celebrate the amazing love of our King. It is in the name of our Savior that we pray these things. Amen.